The colonial virus is why I'm poor. The colonial virus keeps me at war. The colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. 2020 has been a year of African resistance. Resistance to police violence, poverty, and mass incarceration. Most African people are happy that Donald J. Trump will not hold the power of the U.S. state much longer. But we also remember that it was Joseph Biden who wrote the 1994 crime bill that put 100,000 more cops on the streets and created a massive for-profit prison industry. While Kamala Harris built her career as a prosecutor locking up Africans in California. Today, we want to look at the role that culture, particularly movies and books, play in a war of ideas that has always been key to building or destroying movements for African liberation. Our guests today are two organizers with the All of Us or None Radical Prison Reform Organization, who are also writers and critics of pop culture. Andre Jones is a doctoral candidate in ethnic studies at the University of California, San Diego. Born and raised in Palmdale, California, Andre attended the University of California, Riverside for undergrad, where he received a degree in African-American studies. He has an extensive history of research and activism on black cultural expression, policing, and mass incarceration. Curtis Howard is a writer, blogger, public speaker, an activist from San Diego, California. One of the earliest members of a local San Diego crip set, Curtis has written about his experience with gang life and mass incarceration in multiple publications, such as the San Diego Reader, and recently appeared on the web-based show, Street TV. He spent decades in various California prisons, including Salinas Valley and Pelican Bay. Curtis is a leader of All of Us Are None San Diego, where he organizes the formerly incarcerated for radical prison reform. Andre, your doctoral project is titled A Dream Eclipse, The Cultural Politics of War Incarcerality in Black Los Angeles. You write that Los Angeles signifies not only a geopolitical region enabled through war, but an entity whose total socioeconomic structure has depended on the preservation and reproduction of discourses of war. Can you explain that for us? Also, tell us how the Cold War, War on Poverty, Vietnam War, War on Drugs, and the War on Gangs were all, in fact, wars on Black people. Thank you for, for that introduction. I, um, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, my doctoral po- project entitled uh, A Dream Eclipsed, Cultural Politics of War and Carcerality in Black Los Angeles. I will say that the, the war component of my work was something that always sort of existed, but I didn't actually really start digging into it a lot deeper until maybe the past three or four years. I will say that it was something that I was running into a lot. And I think we hear it a lot in just, you know, U.S. popular discourse where we are hearing things like the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on poverty, and so on and so forth. And for me, the word war just wasn't enough. I felt that it was, it had a little bit more of a connotation that was 
showing itself through my research to be a little bit more specific to what you would call the, the black condition. And so I felt that it was it was a little bit insignificant for me to just refer to something as a war as if it just happened, as opposed to uh, a series of logics and discourses that really indicate what uh, the late sociologist Clyde Woods calls the plantation block. So how do we understand power as it operates at the structural level? Being mindful of longer histories of the Middle Passage and uh, and emancipation and reconstruction, and why and where does Los Angeles fit into that rubric? So, so, so yeah. let's take a step back, break that down for us. You talk about a plantation block logics. Uh, break that down for us. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I felt like so. So for me, it was it was less so about because because I think it's easy to over encompass things sometimes. So I I feel like the same forces that legitimize state power at the op as it operates as as I said in, in the form of what you say the plantation block would somehow and this is this is what I'm trying to do with my work is it is it correlates to the same powers that legitimize and, and are at the center of the proliferation of the carceral state as we understand it today. So it's it's kind of, I want to say maybe an 80 to 100 year history in which the plantation turns into the prison cell and what black popular culture, culture production at the insurgent level um, by way of, you know, film, music and visual art created and produced by the black working class, particularly in the earlier decades of the 19 or of, of the 20th century, how we can use that as an avenue. So, so, for, so for the black community, prison and slavery doesn't stop at the jail cell or the plantation, correct? It also impacts the lives of all African people. Absolutely. The understanding of carcerality or the carceral state in my work suggests that it's not just the jail cell, as you've said. But if we look at how we understand a place like Los Angeles, or just, you know, you, you can think about it in different iterations across the United States, how it's also related to, say, the entertainment industry, how it's also related to the media, how it's also related to housing and real estate, and how these apparatuses operate in order to, as, as I say, create and sustain a society that's depending and entirely crucial on, on the preservation of, of warfare logics and materials. And so for me, it, it wasn't, it, it's, it's me really dealing with this, with the idea that warfare is not just a metaphor. Um, and that's, it's, it's an actual lived state of being for, for many black people across the diaspora, specifically in my dissertation uh, in Los Angeles and Southern California. So you talk about this variety of wars this constant state of war that African people experience, the Cold War, Vietnam War, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on gangs. So how are those wars actually wars on Black people in your research? Ruth Wilson Gilmore, she has this this saying where the highest amount of violence happening on the home front of the United States correlates to levels of violence happening internationally. And so for me, that really triggered a line of thought that I was like, okay, this is actually something that many people have been talking about in different iterations, I would say over the past at least 20 to 30 years, give or take. And so for me, I wanted to say that this was not just something that happens across 
the Pacific or across the Atlantic in, in places that many of us have never and probably never will see. But how does that correlate to the ideas in which we understand struggle and um, living in material conditions enabled through both domestic and transnational iterations of warfare and how that operates and impacts the individual lives of Black people here to this day? Thanks for that. Because this is one reason why we in the Huru movement classify the struggle for African liberation as a struggle against colonialism, not racism. And we also understand that it was through the assault, the brutal assault on Africa, that African people were colonized and that capitalism was produced. Chairman O'Malley Ashitella points out that it's not at the point of production, but it's actually at the point of the bayonet that Africans were colonized and oppressed and capitalism was produced. So thanks for that, because what it really seems that you're saying in your work is that warfare and the war economy and the military industrial complex isn't just something that simply produces uh, California or life in California and all these different industries, but it's an actual continued state of being. It identifies the relationship between white settler colonial state and African people and other indigenous and colonized people. Curtis, you're an original member of Neighborhood Crips, a set in Southeast San Diego. In many ways, your writings provide a picture of African life in the belly of the beast. You came of age immediately following the government's overthrow of the Black Power movement in the late 60s and early 70s. San Diego was the site of the assassination of two Black Panther members. In your recollection, how did life change for Black people in San Diego after the defeat of the Black Power movement of the 60s? And what impact did that have on the rise of gangs in San Diego? Oh, that's a great question. I do recall in my area, because San Diego did have a, a pretty good uh, following and in, in a showing of, of the, the actual Black Panther Party. And uh, a couple of them lived at a house uh, not far uh, from where I lived. It was good, uh, you know, to have our people, you know, united in that way. After the movement slowed down, I do remember things being okay, you know, for a while. And that was a result of all of the work and the effort uh, that had been put in, you know, by these brothers and sisters to make things uh, right for us. Later on, I seen the transition come to where gangs begin to mobilize uh, more after the movement uh, slowed down. These same gangs were actually had been part of the movements. Uh, but when the movements died down, uh, they became without purpose, as to say, not so much purpose as as initially uh, was there. And th then the gangs, you know, uh, uh, started and uh, things change uh, a little bit from there. But at the onset of my gang membership, things Although they had changed to where the effort of the black movement was slow, gradually being pulled and less recognized by the gangs, there was still a certain form of unity and loyalty uh, that was there that made gang membership attractive still. And these things were handed down 
to us from the actual Black Power movement. Gangs were sort of modeled after a lot of these organizations. There was still a lot of unity there. I think as time went by uh, and the the purpose and everything became over uh, shadowed by the new age and by uh, and just by society and and uh, the uh, impact of that society and uh, white supremacy has on the entire world and community, you know. So I just wanted to follow up with that, and I just think it's very interesting as you were saying that gangs were modeled after the Black Power organizations such as the Panthers. And as we're talking about, there was a military defeat of the Black Power movement of the 60s and 70s. And um, something that that I wanted to ask you is that the presence of gangs in San Diego, it doesn't seem like it was accidental. In fact, in the early 70s, the Los Angeles County Probations Department had a program called Operation Transfer, where they shipped Crips and Bloods to San Diego. And I'm wondering, what role did police, probation, and other forms of state control play in the spreading of Crips and Bloods in California? That's that's a that's a good one, uh, because actually that's 100% on. Because initially San Diego did not have Crips and Bloods. However, the relocation program is what you're talking about that started in Los Angeles to where brothers up there who became in contact with the, uh, the law and had legal issues and troubles, uh, they were moving them as an alternative to sentencing. If anyone uh, had a relatively small legal issue, they would say, well, it's your environment here. Let me send you here. Uh, actually, they were sending them, the people that they sent down here, are the ones who actually started the gangs here in San Diego. So the San Diego Crips and Bloods were started uh, by L.A. gang members who were sent down here, as you uh, say. So had it not been, I don't know how long it would have taken, if it would have eventually happened. But I do know that uh, my gangs and every other gang, actually, uh, but my gang was directly started by a, a Los Angeles uh, gang member. So, yeah, that's that's right on. Andre, Black authors, filmmakers, and musicians and other types of cultural workers have told the stories of this war on Black people in Los Angeles and California. This is, in fact, the theme of novels by early writers like Chester Himes, the author of If He Hollers, Let Him Go, The Lonely Crusade, and Yesterday Will Make You Cry, a fictional biography of his time in prison. It is also reflected in the more recent novels by Walter Mosley, including the Easy Rollins series and Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. What would you say the message or significance of some of these books are? This is actually a question that I would all I would uh, wholeheartedly point to Curtis for, because he's a, a living example of this genre of, of Black literature. And I think just Black art in general has much to do with the fact that it is largely overwhelmingly autobiographical. 
right? And I, the, the the literary term for that, they call it a Bildungsroman, right? Which describes James Baldwin's first novel, right? Go Tell It on the Mountain, where we know that the narrator or, or the protagonist of the story is in fact Baldwin himself. We know that if he hollers, let him go. Bob Jones is the literary embodiment of Chester Himes himself. So we see this as, as a very dominant thread across these novels and films. So, so I think that would be one of the main realms of significance that I would point to is the fact that oftentimes what the world perceives of as fiction isn't fiction to Black people. And I think that these novels really make the case very clear about that. But on top of that, it's showing that things aren't fiction. People perceive it as fiction. And the flip side of it is the fact that people perceive the fiction that they see of Africans produced by colonial media, the colonial images of Africans that they see in popular media. They perceive that as real. But looking at these novels written by people like Chester Himes and stuff like that, a constant theme of this work is the fact that Africans are in a constant state of warfare, whether it's Easy Rawlings, who goes from fighting in World War II to having to fight against white power on the streets of Los Angeles, Bob Jones, who is in this constant state of warfare, who draws similarities between the struggles of Africans, interned Japanese people, Mexicans in the Zoot Suit Riots, or his other book, uh, Yesterday Will Make You Cry, in which Warfare, once again, is not a metaphor. So in that way, you know, what are some of the significance uh, that you feel to uh, these books and these genres, to this constant state of warfare that uh, African people uh, are experiencing? Uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a great follow up. And I think if I will speak on If You Hollers, Let Him Go, while it is a novel that takes place under the rubric of World War II, I would say that the real warfare that we are introduced to as readers is the psychological warfare that Bob endures from page one to the very end. Also, in relation to the carceral component, we're not actually exposed to Bob's relationship to an actual physical, like the prospect of going to jail until the very end of the novel. The only other time we really truly see that is sometime in the in the beginnings of the novel where there's a there's a reference to Japanese internment. So in terms of like the literal incarceration, it's a little bit sprinkled through, but I think the kind of warfare that we are really exposed to with Chester Himes's work in particular is the the psychological realm of it. And oftentimes this is, the, um, Mike Davis calls it Dostoevskian, right? Because in, in, in Dostoevsky's novels, he talks a lot about the psychological torment of suffering. Um, and this is something that Chester Himes really put together uh, with these novels in particular. So there's a lot of stream of consciousness in there. So we actually know what the protagonist is thinking because it actually says it as opposed to something that's literally left up to the reader's interpretation. It's something that Himes himself has said, like, these are the psychological and mental components that come with feeling dominated by your surroundings. Here's what it looks like, and here's how it might sound like, according to the character of Bob Jones, i.e. Chester Himes. Right, right. And that novel specifically, Himes is talking about psychological warfare, but that psychological warfare is not removed from a constant state of actual warfare, right? There's battles between yeah, him uh, in the workplace. He's brutalized by the police. 
There's the constant threat of lynching and things like that, which he actually follows up with that other novel, The Lonely Crusade, in which uh, this African labor organizer who's traveling throughout California witnesses lynchings uh, in California and things like that. So, so yeah, thanks for uh, your insights. Curtis, you're the author of Cellmates and Sellouts, a collection of stories of life on the streets and behind bars. Cellmates and Sellouts dispels many myths about incarceration that the capitalist media promotes. How have shows like Cops, America's Most Wanted, First 48, Lockdown, Scared Straight, and other films, documentaries, and television series serve to create popular opinion in support of mass arrest, imprisonment, and police murder of Black people? This is the idea that I got for the book, Cellmates and Sellouts. It was actually from watching and seeing some of these TV shows and uh, what they call reality shows, uh, which uh, I call unreal uh, shows. Uh, But just watching a lot of these shows and seeing how they uh, set these shows up to uh, mislead the people and to further damage uh, formerly incarcerated people by showing things like, you know, the the buff guy on the weight yard, you know, smoking a cigarette and, and lifting weights. This is the idea. And these are the images that are put in people's mind about the big buff black guys. And it still has an impact on me today because I work out. And when I work out and, and I'm looking good and, and my muscles are, are out there and I'm looking buffed, you know, I don't, I'm kind of apprehensive about going out in society as a white guy could jog down the street with his shirt off. They're going to be intimidated by me. The first thing they're going to say when they see me, put it this way, is that when you see a buff black guy, it means he's been to prison. When you see a buff white guy, he goes to the gym. And uh, these are the images that uh, have been put into the heads of people, you know, to where when they see us, uh, this is what they see. There's other things uh, that go on in in a lot of these shows uh, where they show people, you know, working with the police, showing the police how to make weapons and things of that nature. These are things that encourage people to normalize informants and to normalize snitching, to let people know, hey, it's okay to do this. Look, these guys are showing us what to do. And that's totally false. You know, nobody's going to sit there and show a cop (laughs) in prison how to make a a weapon and still be walking around. You know, it's not going to happen. There's other images on TV showing people happy in prison and working in the kitchens and nobody's happy about being forced to have these jobs because what they don't tell the public is that they tell the public that we work and that people are in prison and and they're working and they show these movies and TVs of people laughing and talking while they're working. Uh, But the thing is, is that no one's happy because we're forced to work. We have a threat hanging over our head that says, if you don't work, see, most people concentrate 
on the pay scales of uh, people who work in prison. And they say, man, these guys work in prison and they get like 12 cents an hour. So everybody's concentrating on that. Oh, man, you know, this 12 cents. Okay, that's bad, too. You know, but the thing is, it's past that 10 cents an hour thing working. It's actually what's more important to focus on is that if I don't work, I don't get out. They're not going to let me out. So while people are focusing on the 12 cents an hour and fighting for that and saying that that's wrong, the real damage is being done at the fact that if I don't work, then I will not be released from prison for what they call good time, (laughs) good time uh, or good behavior. So which behavior is connected to slave labor, you know, they're saying, you know, I quit some jobs in in prison myself where I just walked out. I was working before in, uh, in the kitchen and the reality of how they were telling me what to do and how the, the just the, the type of work that was being done being something that someone gets paid 30 or or $40 an hour for, I'm in there getting 10 cents an hour and they're pushing me around. And then the threat is over my head. And if you don't do it, you know, you will serve out an entire of five to 10 more years extra, which is, that's an entire another sentence that's I'm going to receive for not working, you know, and I've become frustrated before and just walked out and said, you know, I'm not taking this job, you know, I'm I'm tired of this. So, so there's a lot of other things that's connected to the prisons and, and how things are being ran in there that kind of takes the focus off of them, uh, that takes the focus off of the captives and, uh, and puts it on us. And it paints images of us that makes the public uh, fear us in, in that way. Uhuru, thank you for that, Curtis. It's really wild because, like, as you're saying, basically, you know, African people basically get blamed for our conditions. And it's not white power that gets blamed. You know, we're the ones who get blamed for the drugs in the economy. And as you're saying, these images that they have of us basically keep the system and society in a constant state of of aggression and being defensive as if we're the ones who created all these colonial problems. So I really appreciate what you're saying. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Andre Jones and Curtis Howard. Curtis, soon after the Black Power movement of the 1960s was militarily defeated through a counterinsurgency war that brought drugs in the Black community, destroyed the Panther programs for self-determination, and assassinated or locked up our leaders, Hollywood came out with what's known as Blaxploitation Cinema. While many of these films had Black actors and were targeted to a Black audience, lots of them were in fact written, produced, and directed by white creators. In the 60s, the cry was off the pigs. By the 1970s, Hollywood put forward Black male police officers, informants, and cooperators, like Huggy Bear, for example, as the heroes of these films and shows. 
what were some of those films and how do you think they impacted the community? Hmm. Uh, good question. I do remember, you know, a lot of, a lot of these films, but one of the ones uh, more recent that I remember was the, uh, oh gosh, Denzel Washington played the, uh, the story of the, the drug kingpin. What was the, what was that movie? Training day? No, 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 no. Uh, he played the big, oh, uh, the big American girl. gangster. American yeah, gangster. American gangster. You know, and like that. And that reminds me of how uh, you said that. You know, they still at the end of the story, it always ends up being them as the heroes. Because when I watch, when I saw American Gangster, you know, I took it as though at the end, this white guy actually takes down this untouchable black guy. And then different parts of the movie where they fool the, uh, bring out the body of the guy and make it and fool the black community into believing that he's alive. And, you know, that kind of me off because it kind of dated back to uh, times uh, before in slavery and being fooled and everything. And uh, and I think that a a lot of the movies uh, now, such as I remember Colors, I remember uh, movies like Superfly and The Mac, and and things like that, and I think at the same time the the black uh, exploitation movies, you know, they do they did have a somewhat meaning to us because there were some things uh, that were going on in our uh, communities of that nature. But when you say one thing, uh, I think that you have to explain stuff out as well. And I think a lot of the movies now they say they they say things, but they don't actually investigate or detail the origin of how all these things come about. And I think it leaves a lot of the people who see these things kind of in a misleading uh, way, because if you don't explain it, uh, then it kind of leads people to, uh, you know, to adopt their own uh, views and perspectives of things that are still hidden in a lot of movies. And TV and mass media, they have hidden uh, messages and things that are hard to to see if you don't look for. Right. Because one thing that's kind of tricky about these films, Kurt, is that in some ways they interestingly show the truth in the sense that it was always the military, the police, commissioners, politicians who were bringing drugs into the African community. So long before Dark Alliance, Black popular culture was suggesting this. However, like at the end of Superfly and most of these black exploitation films, it's not collective upliftment of the African community that is the solution. It's one person's individual hustle or uh, ability to quote unquote pimp the system, uh, which gets them free. Uh, However, the rest of the community is still suffering. So let's switch the script a little bit. Let's talk about the books or movies that portray a more positive and realistic view of Black life. You are a fan of novels by people like Iceberg Slim and Donald Goins, as well as more mainstream authors like Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin. When you were incarcerated, what were your favorite books and what impact did these books have on you? Wow. You know, when I was young, you know, when I went to the youth authority at uh, 16 years old, 
And when I arrived there, it was a popular readings of Iceberg Slim and Donald Goins. And these were the books that were going all around throughout that school. I was in a place called uh, Paso Robles School for Boys. And these were the books that were going around. I mean, they were readily available and everyone was swapping them and reading them. It was like they were all in all of the different units and whatnot. So these were a lot of pimp stories and hustler stories in the community. But one day I went to the library because they had like a choice. You had options of where you could go uh, during free time. So during free time, you could go to the gym. You could go to the pool or you could go to the library and nobody ever went to the library. You know, they always had all the action was always at the, uh, you know, they, they never had anything set up at the library to where they would announce, hey, today we're showing a real good movie at the library. It was always, uh, you know, at the gym, we're going to be doing some three on three basketball. You know, they would do things to get people to go to those places. So. One day I went to the uh, library and I ran into a section of black uh, literature, you know. So I'm like, well, I've looked at, I've read the Iceberg Slim and the Donald Goins, but here's some more books uh, by blacks. And these are books not going around like those over there inside the units. These books are can only be found in the library. But I don't know how it was that all of the other books were all in the units already. So I said, I'm going to investigate and look at and read some more. So I start reading. And, and one of the first I read was, uh, I remember uh, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, you know, and then I remember looking for more uh, stuff uh, by these uh, authors. I remember A Native Son. And so I, I fell in love with these novels. And uh, no one was reading them. And I was trying to tell people, hey, man, this look at this. You know, this is uh, good. And so I just went back. I found some Malcolm X. I was surprised to even know that they had uh, these books early on in the system. They did have books like this. But even now, today, as times went along within the state and the prison industrial complex, they stopped having uh, literature wasn't uh, as available. So, But wh- while it was, uh, when I was a youth, I read as, as much uh that's where I got turned on to uh, the more uh, black literature. I actually had to stumble up on it and investigate by going to the library to see what else they had black that wasn't about hustling or pimping. And that's where I stumbled across everything that I did. I remember reading Asada. I mean, everything that people talk about now of the books, I may need a refresher because People talk about them now, but I've read those books so long ago, man, that sometimes people say things and quote them. I, I still remember the core and the actual story of them, but it, to actually go into detail, I'm, I would need refreshers on it because I've read them uh, so long ago and I read them as a youth. Yeah, those books are, you know, it's important for me to read both, actually, the Donald Goins and Iceberg Slims and to elevate to more uh, readings, uh, James Baldwin and, and all, it was more, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that, Kurt, because one thing that we do know is that the removal of the books from the prisons in the 1970s, the removal of those programs to for education to 
stamp out illiteracy and things like that. Those things were actually central to the counterinsurgency because it was through those reading groups and writing groups and literature that produced people like George Jackson, right? It produced the revolutionary struggle that we saw uh, coming out of the California prison system. So in the 1970s, one of the first things they did, they got rid of all that stuff, right? And that was central to the counterinsurgency. But uh, Mwambi? Andre, you've written about the Black Independent Film Collective in the 1970s and 1980s called the Los Angeles Rebellion. I wanted to ask you, what was the Los Angeles Rebellion? And how did these films give a more accurate view of the African working class? The, the Los Angeles Rebellion was a collective of third world identified Black graduate students at UCLA who enrolled in, I, I want to I say it's called their uh, Department of Ethnocommunications, which was essentially like what became like the, the place to study film. And so they were they were under the, the instruction of a, of a film historian by the name of Tsosomi Gabriel, and they really worked and developed a larger cultural significance of what they would call third cinema. So that's who they were, and they really came into fruition in, in the wake years of the Black Power movement, and arguably lasted well on through the eighties and the early nineties, and so. What these films did, I remember one of the members, a uh, professor at UCS, UC San Diego, uh, Zainabu Davis, I heard her speak one time and she explained that what made them significant was because they were students, they didn't have the budgets to create, you know, like Hollywood level or industry level films. But as students, they somehow remained students for, for many years. Getting the master's degree wasn't the end goal was it was the fact that they had the had access to UCLA's equipment um, in order to continue the use and creation of, of these films. And I think one of the larger themes in Black film is something that film scholars refer to as the realness dimension is, um, you know, how, how real or how authentic are these films. And I think one of the better places to look at that are through the L.A. Rebellion films because they were made not necessarily in opposition to Hollywood, but because they were filmed in Black neighborhoods. They were filmed by Black students. It was, it was a largely Black cast and production team. And the actors weren't necessarily actors in the sense of, like, you wouldn't find Sidney Portier in one of these films, right? They were, they were largely people from the community. So I think, I think with those three components to L.A. Rebellion films, I would say that those were in effect, the, the more authentic views of, of African working class struggle, in, particularly in South Central Los Angeles during the 1970s and 80s. Wow, I really appreciate that analysis. Um, it really speaks volumes um, where you have a place like South Central in uh, comparison or juxtaposition to a place like Hollywood, and we're getting these amazing films coming out of Los Angeles still. I wanted to say that one of the films in particular that came out of the Los Angeles Rebellion is Bush Mama, whose character is a working class African woman. Um, I wanted to get your opinion. What did you think about that film? Uh, I, I think it's an amazing film. Uh, and I'm not even just saying that because I, I, I write about it. But I think that uh, just just before uh, we started this, this segment, uh, Dr. Odin and I were talking about how LA Rebellion films sort of operated in, in, in 
direct contradistinction to the black exploitation films that we see during the same era. For example, Bushmama is sort of your figurative oppositional figure to your Pam Greer, right? It's like, you know, black woman protagonist bearing the, you know, the big Afro wig, right? And is sort of the, the, the center of all of the entire narr- narrative of the plot. I, I love the film. I've watched it, you know, a number of times by now and I get something new out of it every time. Haile Jarima is just you know, uh, just a genius with with all the intents that he derives and builds from in, in the creation of this film in particular. Definitely, you know, eleven out of ten recommend, <laughs> but definitely don't expect to be entertained per se. But definitely be ready to to really really think and and be uncomfortable with the material. Yeah, Uhuru, thanks for that because as you know, Andre Bushmama is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, most films, when they're talking about the condition of African people or the African working class center black men, but this film shows us that you can center African women in this struggle of African people in South Los Angeles, but it doesn't distort the story, right? Uh, in fact, it shows that one struggle for African people is a struggle for control over our own lives or the own production of our own value of, of African life uh, as well. And it really shows, it centers the alienation of uh, African working class women uh, who had been displaced from employment, struggles with the welfare system, uh, as well as the impact of growing uh, African international uh, liberation struggles uh, from the 1970s on the consciousness of the African working class. You know, Deborah, oh, uh, she looks like Pam Greer, but she's not Pam Greer, right? She's not a a superwoman character. Instead, she's a everyday African working class person who struggles for what's right. She eventually commits an act of self-defense against police terror, but it doesn't end in a fantasy. It ends in her own uh, incarceration, but at the same time, a liberation and protection of the future generation of of African people. So without a doubt, to me, uh, these films really show a way forward in how the African working class can produce its own a revolutionary cinema. But Kurt, I want to ask you a question and switch up a little bit and talk about Take a Ride With Me by J.O. Felony. In 1995, J.O. Felony, also known as Bullet Loco, uh, who is also from your neighborhood, released his debut album, Take a Ride With Me. This album put San Diego on the map. It also served as a cultural response to the steep rise in the U.S. prison population. You were incarcerated when the album dropped. How did J.O.'s album give voice to the struggles you also write about in your books? Oh, man, that was a cool album, man. And it felt like right on time because, yeah, I was incarcerated at the time. And it was someone who had centered his uh, rap to fit into the prison system, which uh, other rappers at the time uh, we're not really talking about it as in depth as he was. He talked about the the prison system. He talked about being on the yard. He talked about the medication, you know, that 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 they were forcing up on people, you know, and and, and getting people to take. And 
and the Thorazine shuffles. And so it was like we totally could relate to, to all the things uh, that he was talking about. And I remember being in uh, Tehachapi uh, Maximum Security Prison, and there was this radio station up there. It was an L.A. radio station we listened to, and it was a DJ named Lala. And uh, actually, she, I think that's the Lala that ma- married uh, the basketball player. So she was a DJ then with uh, Steve Harvey. And I remember them announcing this new song. Uh, we're going to play this song by this brother from San Diego. And I was like, whoa, you know, and uh, and, uh, and then they said uh, J.O. Felony, which was somebody I knew personally. And I said, wow, man. So, yeah, he, he finally dropped something. I wasn't surprised because I, I always knew that he, he was good. And But it had all the things that he talked about got the attention of everybody in there. And I remember everybody like uh, ordering this uh, CD because he was like a spokesperson for us. You know, he talked about the things that we were going through and he had like a political edge to it. We appreciated that at the time, you know, because he talked about all the things that that we went through. Uh, And I think that it was, to me, it put him in an image and to me and to all the people who were incarcerated at that time, we uh, looked at him like a Tupac or or like a a political or or a conscious rap gangster, you know, (laughs) it was, uh, he, uh, he laid it out, and that was important for somebody to come along and and, and do that for us. Yeah. yeah, thanks for that, because it's an album that's now 25 years old, mm-hmm. but it actually gets better and better and better as the years pass, because this was a time in which only possibly the African People's Socialist Party and a handful of other activists were even talking about uh, this so J.O. put it on wax, the struggles of the African working class, and that really defines, actually, J.O.'s rap history, uh, as well as, I think, uh, you know, overall the neighborhood that you came out of and so many others came out of in San Diego, the African working class character. So he talked about really a connection between his time as a foster child to his time from juvenile hall to camp to youth authorities to prison and really in a much needed uh, political characteristic. So thanks for that, Kurt. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Andre Jones and Curtis Howard. Curtis, you began writing cellmates and sellouts, and crips and politics while you were locked up. Now that you're out and organizing for prison reform, uh, it seems that your book has had a positive effect on other incarcerated people and those who have been released. Do you want to talk about that and what you're trying to achieve today? Absolutely. Man, it's so many things, you know, I was uh, recently talking uh, with somebody about the new book that I have coming out is called CAPS, and it stands for Crips and Politics. And so they actually, you know, what's your target audience? Uh, there's everybody's the audience because it it goes in and has an impact on everyone and is written to. 
in different ways. But the impact that I really wanted to have, because I can get like highly political and like get off into all the the drugs and how everything happened and the drugs were distributed into the communities and the origin of that and everything. But I'm coming for my people and my homeboys who were left behind and who are still suffering and are still impacted and who are still at risk as a result of this life. And that's my main target. Yes, I don't mind educating the people who haven't lived this life and explaining things to him to them about how this goes and giving them an understanding and and to how to look at this. But my main target is are the people who went through the type of things that I went through and to have an impact on change and transitioning by showing how I transition and how my mindset gradually transitioned to become what I am today. I actually did that by refocusing my energy, and which was influenced by a lot of the things that I read early on in Black history. And I think that information is important because reading those books about the struggles of my people and everything they went through, it kind of made me feel guilty about being a gang member. <laughs> you know, after reading that stuff, I mean, how can you turn around and go back uh, to that? You know, so I show in my book caps how I talk about how I read these books a lot because I setting the stage for this transition for them to know you know, uh, how how to go about this and, and what brought me into this. So all the things that uh, I talk about, I wanted to have an impact and give meaning and purpose because there's so many of us, man, right now, I've been to so many funerals, man, of deaths, you know, and I've seen so much and, you know, I've had so many people die and killed and violent and everything. But I know that if we refocus our energies, in our mindsets that, man, we could be uh, amazing in other ways and we could be the role models of unity and power in in uh, to, in today's uh, society. And that's what's important for me to do is to show and it, uh, best be uh, exemplified because I'm not a person who believes in yelling and talking to people and preaching to people and pointing and telling them what they have to do. I like the reading thing because that's what I did. I read books in my own space and in my own time, and I was able to accept things on my own terms that I read, and it wasn't anybody standing in my face telling me. And they could be telling me the same thing the book is telling me, but I'm least likely to be receptive to something that's being told and pumped into me through somebody shouting and telling, you need to pull your pants up. You know, I could read the same thing in a book and accept it like that. So I think books are my funnel and form and my vehicle to reach uh, people. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Because we know in this war of ideas that literature, film, television, and all of these other colonial images produced about African people have played a role in creating the system. So in that sense, we know that the work that you're doing, be it as a writer or as an activist, is central to 
uh, dismantling the system and building a system in which and a world in which uh, African people uh, truly have power and uh, self-determination. So thanks for that, Kurt. Yeah, we really appreciate that. I wanted to ask you, Andre, what are you hoping to achieve through your writing and activism? I think my my main form of activism is more so in the realm of teaching and writing. Uh, so I, I very much echo what, what Curtis was saying just now. I'm not really much, maybe if you asked me like 10 years ago, I was kind of the person to go to every single protest and, you know, be the most outspoken. But I, I, I realized that as the years went on that I realized that my arena is is very much so in the classroom and in what I write. So I do hope that whatever it is that I am able to produce can impact someone. I, I hope to continue to write. If nobody reads it, then that's up to them. I, I definitely do like to be in the spirit of knowing that I am doing my part and what I feel like is my realm with within the larger struggle. So I, I do hope that I can at least be the person to introduce, you know, students and other people and, you know, be allow them to be able to introduce these issues and topics and, and forms of culture to their families and in their own circles. So so yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty much it. And all of it, you know, is definitely in the long and divine struggle for freedom for all people, especially for African people across the world. Yeah, thanks for that, Andre, because Once again, in this war for ideas, we know that it's important that we see no ground to colonialism and white power. So uh, academia, uh, or at least the classroom, the classroom could be in academia, the classroom could be at Pillars of the Community, where you also do public, political, and community education. All of these places can be places of anti-colonial struggle uh, and struggle for Black self-determination. So thanks for that. Curtis, one last question. If people want to purchase your books or get involved with some of your community efforts, how can they reach you? Oh, they can reach me through All of Us Are None Facebook page. We do have a Facebook page on on All of Us Are None, uh, San Diego, uh, because as you know, we have 27 chapters. Uh, nationwide. So the San Diego chapter of All of Us Are None Facebook page, San Diego, uh, would be uh, the the best way uh, to reach me. So this is we uh, support and advocate uh, for formerly incarcerated people and their families. Most of our membership is comprised of formerly incarcerated people, mainly people who have been to prison and who have been, have conser- served a considerable time uh, in prison. So these are the people who know what's up. These are the people directly impacted that know the ropes and know everything that needs to be done because we're tired of people making decisions about us and for us. So what we do is we make our own decisions based upon the needs uh, that mostly uh, impact us. And that's all of us or none. Uh, San Diego, Facebook. You were listening to. The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Andre Jones and Curtis Howard. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. 
For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Unk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Andre Jones and Curtis Howard, for joining us today. We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Horizontal violence, that's colonial virus. State violence, that's colonial virus. Gentrification, that's colonial virus. Mass incarceration, that's colonial virus. Deportation, that's colonial virus. The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black women, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black men, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black children, that's colonial virus. We can't take no more of this colonial virus. We say down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus.